Hey everyone, this is Caleb, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast. Today, I am joined by Sho Baraka, and he has recently released a brand new book called He Saw That It Was Good. And it's early in 2021. I know that we still have several months to go, but this is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. And I'm so excited to get the opportunity to talk with him about it. But before we get into it, I do want to let you know if this happens to be your first time listening to the Learner's Corner podcast, you know, this is a place to where we want to create uh, a safe place to have difficult conversations. Because if you're like me, you know that it's not always possible to have uh, any type of conversation that you want with just anyone. And, and that's for multiple or multiple different reasons. Maybe you're not sure how they're going to um I was going to say, ultimately, I think it does boil down to maybe you're not sure how they're going to respond and you're not sure if they're going to be a safe place or a safe person to be able to talk about some of these things with without experiencing any judgment in that. And that's really what we want to do here. And and a couple of uh, the things that I love to say is, you know, hey, this is a podcast for lifelong learners where we truly believe that we can learn from anyone and everyone from anything and everything. And and sometimes the case is sometimes we learn some of the things not to do uh, from different people or we learn some of the things not to do whenever it concerns um, different subjects or, or topics and all sorts of things like that. Now, before we get into my conversation with the show, I do want to uh, uh, recommend a recommended resource of the week. And it's an article that uh, that I came across actually from uh, a previous podcast guest uh, from Justin Gibney, who is part of the AND campaign and show is actually part of the AND campaign. And the AND campaign does so many incredible things. I, I absolutely love the work that they're doing. And one of the articles or an article that Justin wrote recently is called Four Cosmopolitan Christians. Secular approval is a common temptation. And what he talks about, and well, he talks about several different things and makes several uh, points in there. But one of the things that he talks about is, uh, and you might be able to get this from the title, is the temptation that we fall into of getting approval and just accepting uh, any and all ideas without necessarily thinking through the ideas, which I think is just so critically um, important, is being able to develop that skill to think through what you're being told to the ideas that you're being presented and thinking through of how they might apply and um, and whether or not like they're they're good ideas or not and for uh, for what Justin what he talks about of thinking about whether or not the ideas that were presented are actually biblical whether they're whether they're rooted in the gospel or not and so uh, I'll just read you uh, one one of the closing lines of there. And then if you uh, want to learn more about it, you could just go ahead and uh, check it out on the show notes. I'll link to uh, Justin's episode that we did, um, I think, sometimes last, uh, sometime last year as well. But he says, we need Christians who aren't smitten with the culture. We need believers who can wrestle with secular thought, affirming the merits and opposing the lies. Christians must be confident and distinctly Christian in their fields. And I think he just talks about, I mean, he says it uh, so well in there. But again, just the idea of that uh, for for followers of Jesus, and I'm, which I am one, um, the temptation can be that we compromise on on some of our beliefs. And, uh, And it's just a tension that you have to manage. 
between affirming the good and some of the things that are said while being able to, as Justin says, detect the lies through that as well, which is something that I'm trying trying to figure out and trying to get better at because as the Learner's Corner podcast, we talk about a lot of different things. We learn from a lot of different people and not necessarily uh, everybody that you know, I agree with, or maybe even that you agree with as well. But I think it's our responsibility to filter it through, to be able to learn from people. And like I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's learning uh, the things to do, and sometimes it is learning the things not to do in that as well. But I'll tell you what, one person that we are going to learn a lot from today, and I absolutely love, like, uh, just as I was preparing for this conversation, I mentioned this in the interview, but show is just such a, like, Man, he is just such a gift. Um, and just his ability to be able to think about things that we were talking about as it concerns even, even Justin's article is so great. And so let me tell you a little bit about show, and then we will get into the conversation. Show is a globally recognized recording artist, performer, culture curator, activist, and writer. Show's work combines his artistic platform with his academic history to contribute a unique perspective, elevating the contemporary conversation on faith, art, and culture. He is an alumnus of Tuskegee University and the University of North Texas. He is the co-founder of Fourth District and he, and the AND campaign as well, which we mentioned earlier. And he has served as an adjunct professor at Wake Forest School of Divinity. He is also an original member of the influential hip hop consortium 116 Click, recording with Reach records. And as I mentioned earlier, he is the brand new author of this book called He Saw That It Was Good. And without any further wait, here is my conversation with Show Baraka. Well, show so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Caleb. It's um, I'm excited to have a conversation. Yeah, and we're going to talk a lot about uh, you know your brand new book. He saw that it was good, but before uh, before we get into that, I did just want to ask you, uh, like, what are some of the things, whether it be you know the problems, the subjects, the tensions, just in life, that are really making you think right now because like just as i was reading the book i was just going like man you're like you just add a way of just phrasing stuff and just being so thoughtful on some of the things that you're thinking about i would love to know what are you thinking about right now oh that's a good question that's a it's a good opening question i um well if most people as i'm sure you know most people probably don't know this but when you write a book it's not like you write a book and then 2 months later it comes out yeah. Um, you, this is, I, I, I started writing a book maybe a year and a half ago, maybe even longer than that. If I'm, I think it's two years ago, actually. Um, but I was finished with the book pretty much. My first, my first edit was in May. And so of 2020, so you got to imagine like in May of 2020, um, you know, it, we weren't at the height of our kind of like the, the, the racial tension and the, the, the politics and all the, um, the the election and stuff like that, and then I, I was able to make some a few edits between May and November, but I had to submit the final project in November, and so it's funny because I think the same thing I was thinking then is is it's even more necessary now is that 
we are a society on the brink of just civil unrest. Even if it's not physical, it's uh, it's definitely ideological and uh, political in a sense that we need sober-minded thinkers. We need civility. We need people who understand that civility isn't always just complacency or just being allowing people to be passive, if you will. But it's it's about being charitable in your tone, being charitable about how you communicate your ideas, even if you strongly disagree with somebody, and leaving space for um, healthy disconnect or healthy disagreement, better yet. And so that's I'm thinking about how, how do I convince somebody that they may be wrong? How do I also convince myself to listen to people when I may be wrong? Mm. And uh, when I wrote this book, I was trying my best to, to have a, a position that was a, you know, a 360 view of myself and say, if I'm having this conversation with somebody and I say, this is absolutely good to me, and they come and say, no, that's not good, what, how should I respond and how would I want them to respond? So that's pretty much somewhat of how I was positioning myself in this book. It's like, all right, let's have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, I would just love, like, what, what are some of your thoughts around or even some of the things that you've learned that help facilitate that type of conversation? Because we don't live in a world where it's easy to do that. Yeah. I, um, I uh, intentionally in the last year and a half, um, I've, I've made a, a concerted effort to read people who I probably didn't read in the past um, to, if you will, humanize people who have different views from me and not just um, different political views, maybe some different theological views, different social views, um, so that I just wasn't in, in my own little vacuum reading people that I always agreed with. Because when you're having a conversation with somebody who you you know have no real connection to, especially like through social media, if you're having a debate through an avatar, it's you know it's easy to demoralize that person. It's easy to take their ideas and say, oh, this is baseless. There's no value to it. But when you actually put flesh and bone to something, especially like if you have a relative who believes something different than you and you love that relative and you know them to be a good human being and you know them to do good work for you and other people, it's harder to dismiss their ideas as something that is purely racist or purely um, ideologue, um, uh, ideological, better yet, and uh, are, are vile. Sometimes it's, well, it's their tribal upbringing and how they've been shaped to, to think this way. And how do we tell better stories in order for people to have better views of humanity as a whole? And not just necessarily win this argument, but win an argument of humanity, if you will. Mm. Okay. So I got to ask, you know, you said that you've been reading a lot of stuff that's different, or even I'm sure you know, podcast, YouTube, you know, all of that stuff. What's one of those things that has just shifted your mindset of how you view things? Because I'm sure there's a lot, but just what's one and how has that affected you? So one of the things I started doing is I, I listen to three podcasts. Um, I haven't done it in the last month as consistently I was as consistently as I was doing it, but there were three podcasts that I would listen to um, uh, consistently. There's the um, there was one that was a libertarian podcast. There was one that was a, a a conservative podcast, and there was one that was a liberal podcast. And oftentimes, the the way that they would format it is is they would talk about current affairs or relevant news, and so you would. Uh, hear about this package and you say, you know what? I want to know what the libertarians are talking about. And then you're like, I want to know what the conservatives think. Oh, I want to know what the, you know, the liberals think. 
And so that way I'm hearing arguments from three different perspectives. And now I, I'm able to kind of like create a synthesis or a better idea of well, not only what I believe, but I'm also able to understand why people feel this particular way rather than hearing what somebody says about their opponent, if that makes sense. And so now it's posturing themselves from um, their own vantage point. And I'm not just hearing what the enemy or the opposition says from the people I agree with. And so that's made me a, a much better thinker, I think. It's made me a better student. It's made me a better um, apologist for my own views, if you will. Um, and it's even helped me with a better, a more holistic, not, not holistic, a better paradigm of policing as well. Like, you know, I was at one point completely against, like, I was I was pretty much police ab- a police abolitionist. Now, after listening to various views, I still think policing needs extreme reform in this country. And I mean, like, serious reform. However, I don't think it's wise to completely abolish policing right now, um, nor do I think policing is only a minority issue. I believe it's an American issue. I think it's a human issue. And uh, but the, the thing is, is that we don't spotlight how policing affects not only just non-black people or black people, but people in general and how a lot of the practices are dangerous and harmless and so are harmful. And so it's kind of it's kind of just it's it's made me change my position on how I talk about policing in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I would just love you know you said it made you a better thinker. Can you expound on that just a little bit more of how you know you know uh, reaching out to and investigating these other alternatives have made you a better thinker? Yeah. So I mean, oftentimes when you are when you have an idea, you 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 you're not you're not you're not challenging it against you know other, other reasonable thinking. Like you'll say, um, you know, the sky is blue, you know, you say the sky is blue and everybody around you is like, of course, yeah, sky's blue, sky's blue. And nobody's like, well, sometimes it's not blue. Sometimes it's, it has an orange tint to it. Sometimes it's, it's dark. And you're like, it's never, what are you talking? You're stupid. And your whole camp is like, that's ridiculous. You're stupid. Yeah. And you shame that person. And then you, you, and this is the other thing. Oftentimes what we do is we set up punching bags against the caricatures of our oppositional thinking. Hmm. But what you have to understand is that there are, there are academics in all types of spaces who think differently. And so what I started to do, and rather than, and I, and I hate to, you know, throw a name out there, but for instance, um, you know, I, I just won't throw a name yeah. just for the sake of, um, you, you'll have, you know, both liberals and conservatives have, like they're pundits. So you have these you have these people who can be characters of a particular, a particular ideological view. And what happens is you usually only argue against those caricatures and those personalities. But the reality is, is that there are academics who probably would kind of communicate it a lot differently than those pundits. And they have way more research and thoughtful positions. And so what I've done is I've, I've bypassed the caricatures. I've bypassed the pundits and the circus to actually get to the source of why would somebody actually hold this view from an academic perspective, people who have doctors behind their names, people who've written research papers, people who have spent their time like assessing this. And I really want to understand this particular view. And uh, it's really helped me. It's, it's helped me process through not just jumping on an idea just because my favorite social media personality says it, but actually saying, okay, no, we're, what's the actual thought process around this as a whole? 
And who can I go to to both affirm and push back against this claim? Hmm. That's so good. So it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And it's and it's it, it can be exhausting because our world just wants immediacy. We we want us to respond to everything immediately. We want to be the first people to tweet out RIP to somebody. We want to be the first person to call something heinous. We want to be the first person to to, to challenge and push back. But sometimes you need to stop and, and process and think like, you know, there are some people who operate like hares and there's some people who operates like who operate like tortoise, uh, turtles. And so I, I think the process of actually thinking through the nuance is is way more helpful than just jumping on bandwagons. Yeah, and I can, and you can push back on this, but I can imagine like that has made you a more empathetic and loving person as well, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any, yeah. Any thoughts on that? Um, <laughs> you said it just made me more empathetic. <laughs> I think <laughs> no. It, 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 I just can't. You know, I uh, I just can't say that somebody is completely out their mind. You know, some people are out their mind. There, there are some people who need to just be. So shut up and go yeah. sit down. Like that goes without saying. But there are some ideas that need to be debated. And um, oftentimes what happens is rather than intellectual, healthy debate, we just go to, we go to ad hominems and we just call people names. And um, that to me is sophomore. That shows that you really don't have any thoughtful things to say. You just want to shame people in order to create uh, this dissonance between them and their argument. When the reality is some people actually have good legitimate arguments that need to be debated publicly. Um, and so when you start to see the human value in the individual, what you'll do is you'll dignify them and it gives you empathy for why they think this way. And then the other thing is if you really feel like their ideas are, are detrimental, rather than just trying to silence them, you you need to bring like, so for instance, I have children and if I feel like my children's behavior is, is negligent and dangerous, I'm not going to just say, you know, shut up and go into a corner, I'm going to have, I'm going to pull them to a side. I'm going to have a talk with them and say, Hey, this is why you don't need to practice this behavior. This is why this is harmful. This is why this is uh, uh, dangerous. This is why this may be detrimental to you and other people, because I want to win them over to what I think would be health and, uh, and wisdom. And if all we do is just, you know, call people names and tell them how ridiculous they are, then we never actually create healthy individuals for society because those folks still got to operate in society. And you calling them names is not going to give them motivation to, um, to to have charity and empathy for you as well. Yeah. So you've written this book. You know, he saw that it was good. And anytime that I'm talking with someone who has, you know, written a book or created any piece of art, I absolutely love hearing, like, what what's the story behind it? Like, what is the event or the series of events that made you go, hey, I, I feel like I need to write this and I need to put this work out into the world? Um, I think one of the events is that, well, one is that I've always wanted to write a book since I was a child. I've always just wanted to write, um, crazy enough. I've always wanted to write fiction. So it just so happens that, um, when I signed my first deal, uh, I was hoping that the first book that I write would be a fiction novel, would be a novel, but you know that's not the case. However, there are pieces of fiction in this book, um, but I've I've always wanted to just communicate creative ideas through literature. I just always want. I just wanted to just. I just wanted to explore, kind of words and concepts through like language, and that's yeah. why I think I love rap so much and hip hop. 
Um, the other thing was, is that um, 2016 happened and I saw that our world was quickly unraveling and that we were becoming more polarizing. And um, I didn't want to write a book necessarily about race or politics because I'm not a, a specialist in anthropology, sociology or politics. But I felt like I can touch on all of those things to, you know, some way, form of another. And then um, lastly, I wrote an article for Christianity Today that was pretty successful. And after that, um, I got a lot of interest from people who were like, hey, are you interested in writing this book? And so from there, I was like, you know what? Maybe it is time for me to write this book. Maybe, and it's funny because when you write raps and you write songs, you, you're, you're trying to pull these great comprehensive these, 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 you're trying to take these great concepts and these, these grand truths and make them extremely comprehensive within like 16 bars or two bars. And I was like, now I have the opportunity to actually take my time and breathe a little bit. And I can take a paragraph, two paragraphs, three paragraphs, four pages to actually communicate something that before I was trying to communicate in, you know, a minute or two minutes. Mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you've learned? Because not only you know, not only do you do rap and hip hop, you've written the book, but you do a podcast as well too. Like, is there is there different like thinking that you've gone to? Like, hey, uh, this is what I choose to talk about in rap. This is what I choose to you know expand in a podcast or a book or anything like that. Yeah, it was funny. Is the hardest of all of those for me was the podcast. Yeah. Cause I just, I just was, I've done, I've probably done like three or four podcasts in my life and I've just never been consistent with, I just can't, I just don't know. I just don't have, I don't know what it is about podcasts that I just, I start and I just be like, I just can't do this. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, I, um, I forgot the question. <laughs> no, no. I was just asking, like, how have you learned, uh, like what method to communicate best Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like whether that be a podcast, song, or book. I think for me, it's 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 really seasonal. It's there's not. I, I don't feel like if early in my life, obviously, I would have said music was the mode, the the modality in which I communicated best and mo and was my favorite. I think as I'm getting older, I'm realizing that that shifts and changes, um, and it's not just podcasting, music, or writing. I think it's also this artistic form of communication through speech and um, like lecturing, because I feel like that's an art as well. You can't tell me that like Martin Luther King wasn't an artist when he spoke, you know, that even, you know, like JFK wasn't some sort of art. There wasn't some art there. Like there are people who speak and communicate that have a a tenor and tone to them that is infectious. And so um, I think for me, it's really about a season. There are moments when I am most inspired to write music. There are moments when I just want to write. There are moments when I am like, let me just communicate through a spoken word or through lectures. Uh, and then there's times when it's like, I wouldn't mind doing a podcast in a like a mat, like a interview format. Um, so it's really seasonal for me, actually. And I think for artists to feel... I don't know. I don't want to speak for all artists, but I just know sometimes artists feel the pressure to have to constantly perform in one in one way in one space. And I think it's liberating to feel. It's it's just liberating to know that I don't have to always communicate in this one way. What helped you get to that 
space because I think that's probably something that you know a lot of people deal with is we feel you know really comfortable in this one lane, and then we, but we feel the call or whatever to move into this other lane. How, how did you work through that? Like, was that a struggle or not really so much? Hmm. Um. No, I don't think it was a struggle. Oh, the other form, I, I totally forgot. The other the other form that I love to communicate through is film and video. Yeah. Um, I, you know, um, if so to answer your question, I think it was easy for me because as a child, all of these different mediums were impressionable on me. Like I loved music. I loved TV and cartoons and um, just entertainment, visual entertainment. Um, I love to write. And as I grew up and I got older, I realized that I didn't have to just be one thing. Um, I do I do want to be great and excellent in all of them, but I didn't have to just be a hip hop artist because I actually went to school for television and film. And so there was a, there was a part of my, part of my life where I was, where I felt like, well, I can only do film, but then I started rapping. I connected with, you know, Reach Records and 116 and while I was rapping, I was still trying to do video and I kind of gave up on my writing. But then eventually I started writing again. And so for me, I think the reason why it may be seasonal is because it takes time and energy to commit to these art forms. And if you're trying to do maybe all of them at once, you, you exhaust yourself and you fatigue yourself out and then your work won't be good. And so I think maybe that's why I operate in seasons. And in those seasons, I'm just keen to what voice needs to be, be heard at the time. And so... Um, I think it's about being sensitive to who you are, how you're feeling in the moment, and then also what resources are around you. Because sometimes it's not just about what you want to do. Sometimes it's like, what can I do in the moment? Because if I can't, if I can't produce music right now, and I know I have this 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 creative expression that needs to burst out of me, well, what way can I do that? And if you have the talent to write, then let it out through writing. If you can make a film or a short movie. Do it through that. And so I think that's how I've learned to let the energy out. Mm. So you start, I want to, I want to read this quote from the book. It's literally the first, the first sentence that you write is so <laughs> like you come out swinging with this, you know, you say we discover an immeasurable amount of good in our lives when we truly realize the depths of our depravity and indifference. And that just seems so counterintuitive to whatever the common, you know, thought is of the day. Would you just be able to expound just on that thought and what made, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, I intentionally wanted people to, I wanted to level set if that's the right, I wanted everybody to know, like, this is, this is where we're starting. Before you get any further in this book, I want you to recognize that you're a mess. (laughs) That you are a wretched individual and you can contribute to some great, harm and destruction in this world. So don't think too highly of yourself. Um, But when you have that perception, when you have that posture, that disposition, and especially as as someone who, uh, for me, from someone of faith, when you know that there is a good greater than you, and the only way to to come to that true understanding of good is through the trust and faith in your creator, then that's when you come to a point of understanding how your wickedness can then be turned into something that can be good because it's now I recognize that I am limited in my thinking. I am limited in my, my, my skill set. I am limited in my empathy. I am limited in so many things. And because now I'm asking for a new worldview, a new perspective, what may happen now 
is that I'll have a better empathy for people because now it's not just what benefits me, it's what benefits other people. Um, I'll, I'll think more deeply about my work because I recognize how dangerous I can do, uh, what the dangers that I can do when I'm only thinking about my self-interest. How do I create for other people? Um, and then also uh, realize that it's not just about me. I'm just, life is just not about me. I operate as one individual in a community of, of other folks in every aspect. People have families, People have jobs where around other people. You live in a community next to other people. You operate in cities and nations. So you're you're a piece to a greater machine. And the great, the better, the quicker you understand that you can be a an obstacle, the better you will. The quicker you re- recognize that you can be an obstacle, the more uh, beneficial it may be for you to 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 open your eyes and remove yourself from the equation or remove the. The, the tendencies that you may contribute that are obstacles for other people, if that makes sense. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I want to, you know, follow up on that from there. So the first question that I have is like, what do you think is it in us that resists the idea that we can be an obstacle to whatever the, you know, the goal or, or the, you know, the, the thing is. And the second thing that I want to ask is how can you tell the difference between, Hey, you actually are, you know, maybe a solution to the thing that we're trying to do versus no, you're, you're like, you're part of the problem. You are the obstacle. Yeah. I think we don't realize that we could be obstacles because we tell stories that make us always, we're always the heroes in our stories. You know, we always, um, you know, there's a, what's the African proverb, the, uh, oh, they just, the, the, uh, the lion is always. It was the hunter is always the 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 victor because the lion doesn't have a narrator. I don't know. Some <laughs> basically, the the hunter is always going to be the hero in a narrative because the lion never has. He, he doesn't have an advocate to tell the story, and so the way we tell stories in this country um, shape how we view ourselves. And it shapes how we view our history. It shapes how we view. Um, the people who are our oppositions, if you will. And um, if you grow up in tribes and they're constantly telling you that those people over there, they do this X, Y, and Z, and the way that we do it is favorable and right, then you're going to continually operate, you're going to continue to operate and do things as if everything you do is for the benefit of, of not only just for yourself, but the world, the way I do business, the way I practice, um, you know, whatever, like the, these the things I believe, the things that I tell people, the the methods in which I make money or get friends, my relationships, like this is the best way to go about that until you get a, uh, I guess, a, a countercultural perspective and people say, well, no, this is kind of like how we've done it and this has been successful and beneficial. And you're like, well, I've always been told that this is how you do this. And like, no, you can do it a different way. And you're like, huh. Oh, wow, that's that's pretty interesting. And until we expose ourselves to other views and ideas, and I'm not saying other views, I, just because it's a different view and idea makes it right. I'm just saying there's always the there's always that it's always beneficial to evaluate um, and to to check your work as the teachers used to say back in school. Like you get an answer, go back and review it and castigate it against other ideas. And and if you come to the same conclusion, all right, and then, then hold tight to your position. And debate it. But if you observe it and you see that it's caused great harm and other people are saying like, no, this is this is push people to the margins. This is called cause oppression. This is caused this. This is caused that. Then maybe you should observe your work. And to, that's and that's kind of the answer to the second question 
is if you're constantly being told that things that you do may be detrimental to people, um, then maybe at that point you should take a pause, do some introspection, and say, how is it possible that what I am doing may be problematic and may be contributing? Because just because people say that something is wrong doesn't mean it's always wrong. Um, and there's a quote in my book I use from Howard Zinn, and he says that um, the poor's, I mean, the cry of the poor is not always just, but you'll never know what true justice is if you don't listen to them. And I do think that's part of our society is that, yeah, every time somebody cries injustice, it doesn't mean that it's actually discrimination and, uh, and injustice to play or, or foot. However, if you consistently turn your ears off to people who are crying or screaming about something, then we'll never know what true justice is because we'll only know what's in our peer view. Like we'll only know what's in front of us. And so it is always good to do self-inventory of what you are, who you believe, and what you believe is good. What do you think it is in us? Because I don't think that the default position is to listen for it. Yeah. Uh, what, what gets in the way of that and how can we be better at listening? I think it, it takes a, I think it takes, for some people, it takes some sort of experience for them to be humble. Um, but I think it, it just, I think a humble posture is, and I don't know how you get there. Um, for some people, get, they get there differently. But I think a posture of humility is first needed for you to listen and realize that, you know, you may not have all the answers. Sometimes it's, going to experience in life from a different person's perspective. I know the moment, the first couple moments I went out this country, I realized that I am a privileged individual. Um, yeah, I may not be the most privileged in this country, but in concerns to the, as a global citizen, I have some resources and some access to things that, man, like these folks are finding joy in things that I am, com I would be complaining about here. And so that created a humble posture in me that when I went back, I began to evaluate my life and the life of others from a different lens. And so that was my humble experience that gave me a humble disposition. For uh, some people, it's maybe a traumatic experience. For some people, it's a friend that has um, sat them down and had a conversation with them. I, you know, it's just different people have different experiences. Sometimes it's just being shamed. And this is where I think shame may be good, like um, to be challenged and to be pushed back on an idea and to be and to be proven wrong about something. Maybe that leads you to be like, OK, well, maybe I need to uh, think through this idea and this this uh, this position a little more, more deeply. Mm -hmm. Another quote that uh really, you know, just hit me in the gut is, you know, you write, when progress rejects the past, we all lose. How, how so? I think in many ways, we are creatures of forward thinking, and we just want to move on to the next grand idea. We want to um, capture the new, not only cool technology, innovation, but also ideas and, uh, and philosophies. And I'm going to butcher this, but G.K. Chesterton talks about how, um, you know, oftentimes we were looking for good 
progress, but we never look to the past and actually ask ourselves what was good. Like what, and 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 we never actually tested the things that were good, but we're quick to move on from it. And uh, I think there are things that are tradition. I think there are things that history has given us that are deeply problematic and troublesome. I also feel like there are things that people, ideas that people have used as weapons against people, but the idea is not bad. It's just how people use them. And so um, rather than just, as they say, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, I often say like a, uh, a key can be liberation for some and it can be um, restriction for others. And so, but the key is not the problem. It's how you use the key. And so how do we take the, 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 the tools of the past, the resources of the past, and not just forsake them just to move on for progress sake, but to look back in history and say, you know, there are some things that were helpful here. And if we are to move on, how do we take what was good and build upon that mm. rather than just moving on for the sake of moving on? Yeah. Is like... I'm thinking of the person who's like trying to figure out how can I better, you know, look at, but I think it, you know, and again, it's just my thoughts. You can push back on it. It's like, there's the, there's the personal past and then there's the, you know, the, the nation past or the state past or the the collective past. What would you say are like some steps of, Hey, if you want to like get the most that you can out of the past, what would you say? Um, I would say, I would kind of, Digress back to digress or regress, regress. I don't know. I will go back to <laughs> the some of the statements I made earlier about uh, being a better observant of history and better um, studying not just the the single narratives that may have been given to us. So, for instance, Frederick Douglass is a hero of mine. I just recently read a book about Frederick Douglass, in some ways, defending the Constitution, which was really interesting to me, mm-hmm. but not defending it for def- like you know the sake of, um, in a way that a segregationist or a Confederate defender, he was defended as saying like, no, this document, in its true essence, proves that this country was built for the purposes of free individuals, not just free white men, but free the freedom of all folks. And he was basically a constitutionalist in the sense that he defended this document saying like, we don't need to, uh, we don't need to abandon this, 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 this document and, and blow it up and write something new. We just need to be true to our word, true to the words that are written here, that all men are created equal. You know what I'm saying? And so in that sense, that's why I say like, he was an individual who wasn't too quick to just blow up the system he looked back and he said, no, the problem is, is you guys use the tool the wrong way. How do we take this tool and actually use it for the, in the way in which maybe you didn't even know that you were creating it for, but your words are greater than you. You don't understand that the truths that have been handed down to you are truths potentially from God, or there's a, there's a, there's a, there's an understanding in this communication that is even beyond you. And so now we're going to actually live that out in its true essence and form. And so in, in many ways, I think that is an example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it makes me think of this, this other quote that you have. You know, you say, we must not let our good ideas supplant the truth. What are some ways that uh, that we can help figure out whether or not we are supplanting the truth with our good ideas? 
Um, I think first, it, sometimes it, the truth can be very inconvenient for us. Um, and uh, if, are you willing to remove yourself out of the equation in order for um, something to succeed? And if that is the case, I think we're dealing with people who are willing to actually listen and hear uh, the truth, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Oftentimes when we are fixated on a good idea is because we realize that it benefits us. Um, but I think the difference between a, the, you know, a good idea, and sometimes the truth is a good idea. So I'm not saying that they're mutually exclusive, but I do think there are things that are very truthful. There are things that are truthful for society, humanity, uh, the universe, et cetera. Uh, but there are things that are also good idea. There are good cultural products. There are good social sensibilities that we practice that are just good ideas. Um, but they not they may not be the truth for everybody. They may not be things that everybody should practice. I talk about my father, uh, grandfather, in one of the chapters, and how oftentimes, you know, you would go and I, you know, when I became a Christian, I would go into people's households, and the the one thing that they, well, it's not just Christian; it's just American. The American dream is your family is to sit around the dinner table and like have a deep thoughtful family conversation and nobody can leave until like, you know, some great grand revelation was revealed or something. And I was like, in my household, when I lived with my grandparents, like that wasn't the case. Like we couldn't, like my grandfather worked all day and we had to eat <laughs> in, I guess you could say in shifts because when my grandfather got home, nobody can be in the kitchen. Like nobody can be in the dining area because he wanted his peace. He wanted to eat by himself. And I felt like that was a noble, righteous thing to do, to give this man his space after providing for us, after working hard throughout the day. The one piece of sanity he wanted was, well, the one piece of um, his grand request was, I just want to remain in this particular space because this is what preserves my sanity when I get home. This is going to make me a better grandfather. This is going to make me a better husband. This is going to make me a better human just to let me to have this moment of rest because I've been out here laboring for the benefit of everybody in this house. That's a good, I think that's a good idea. The truth is, is that we should be connected to people. Good ideas is that we should eat around the table together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so sometimes we take the we take the the good idea and say, no, this is the truth. Yeah. Uh, another thing that you write about, which is very, which was very intriguing to me, is the idea of a creative orphan. Can you kind of explain what that is? Yeah. Uh, I think we all belong to tribes, and I think tribes are great but we also know that tribes can be limited. Oftentimes when you operate outside your tribe, you are in a space that is not easily recognizable to you. And there are a lot of people who benefit um, from your cultural product in these particular tribes. Um, so evangelicalism is considered a tribe. And for a long time, I was a part of the evangelical world or white evangel. Let me be more specific. I was a part of the e, the white evangelical world in uh, creating art. Um, but I often felt like this wasn't the tribe in which I was developed and cultivated. And although I learned a lot, also felt I felt like there were some restrictions to what I wanted to talk about and how I wanted to create. And so for me, I felt like Moses, as I communicate, I felt like an individual who saw the benefits of being in a palace, but oftentimes felt like this is not where I'm supposed to be. And um, for, for a lot of creatives out there, you are in places where you know you feel restricted but you want liberty and you want liberation. Um, what I'm not saying is that you should always only be in places where 
you feel validated 100% because that's the reality is America is not that kind of place. We're a place where this is a a, a place that is a, a plethora of, of ideas and ethnicities and et cetera, et cetera. So you're always going to be around people who are different. Um, but hopefully in your operating in a particular space, how are you going to serve not only you know, God, but serve other people and then serve, you know, yourself in a sense that you're true and honest to how you communicate within the confines and the restrictions that God has set, not culture, not the palace, not the the the, the cultural elites, but only find your restrictions in what thus says the Lord. How how have you navigated that tension between choosing like, hey, I'm I'm going to enter this space to where I know that I you know, have to be limited, uh, but I'm going to do it versus the the other tension of what you were saying of like, hey, I'm just going to choose my own space to create my own thing to where I'm unlimited. How do you, how do you manage that tension? I think you have to be honest with yourself and uh, <laughs> understand that, you know, maybe when you, when you're, when you're independent and you say, I am no longer willing to be a, uh, an orphan in a particular space, I am going to live on my own in my own quote unquote creative calling and expression, then you got to understand that the limitations that you may find in, in creating opportunity for yourself, because um, every creative industry has gatekeepers. Every creative industry has pathways and they have distributions in which you have to connect to people in order to get your stuff out there. And some people don't have the energy or capacity to, to build, they don't have the entrepreneurial spirit to have to, to, to build their own pathways or construct roads in order for them to be driven in a particular direction. Some people would much rather prefer, say, you know what, I, I much rather operate in the palace. I much, uh, you know, I would use a Bible story. Um, <laughs> Moses found himself not wanting to operate in the palace, but, you know, uh, even though this is, not apples to oranges, but, uh, uh, or it is more apple to oranges. Daniel and uh, the Hebrew boys actually were like, no, we're, we're going to remain in the palace, even though they were slaves at first, but they could have, you know, probably escaped if they wanted to. But they saw the opportunity to take advantage and to serve God in this particular palace. And in the same sense, you may not want to be there. You may find yourself miserable there, but you can be a light and you can be uh, a beacon of hope for people in that space. And so it may not be all you want, but God has placed you there. So I would say use that for the benefit of his glory and the benefit of other people. Mm-hmm. Whenever, because uh, I know this is part of your story of leaving, you know, the where the spaces where you felt limited as well. What have you learned about how to leave those spaces like well? Yeah. I've learned that um, you want to try to as best as possible to preserve friendship because to be, you know, if we want to be shrewd and business savvy, you connect. People advance because of relationships. People get opportunities because of relationships. I can't tell you how many times somebody's hit me up and said, "Hey, man, I got this project. Do you know anybody?" And I'm not just going on Twitter or Facebook and saying, "Hey, I got this random opening." 
<laughs> I'm going to people's like, yeah, I got a guy or a girl. I know, I know this young lady who's great at that. I, let me connect you. It's because that young lady and I have a great relationship and I trust her. And I felt like there was some sort of equity that was built there. But when you leave a place and you <laughs> and you blow the building up, <laughs> um, they're going to be like, yeah, that show is a jerk. So I'm not going to recommend him for anything. Now, some buildings probably need to be blown up, if I'm honest. <laughs> but I've learned that um, there are ways of leaving and being very critical. And like, you know, some places have exit interviews, you know, but you can say, hey, here's what I think you guys as an institution need to think through uh, in the future. And here's one of the reasons why I'm leaving. And I'm going to say this in the most... Uh, compassionate way possible, but I'm also have some conviction behind what I'm saying. X, Y, and Z, you guys need to work on blah, 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 blah. But hopefully when I leave here, we we will still have the lines of communication open um, because we're all people who are trying to figure this out in the dark um, and we stumble. And I, and what I'm learning is there are, there are people who, all people deserve grace. And if I look at my life, and I just say, you know, I've done it all right and I've never failed. I would be a liar. And I would hope that people who ended work relationships with me would look back and say, man, he's grown, he's changed. And I would like to extend grace to him um, or even communicate things to me that um, that I need to work on. And so in the same sense, I would want them to leave well in order f- for us to have, uh, you know, a relationship that we can continue to build upon. And so um, that doesn't mean leaving, that doesn't mean you you can't tell the truth about the institution. That doesn't mean that you can't be honest and authentic. I also think there's a difference between being publicly messy and being privately intentional. Um, there are some things that need to be communicated, public, communicated publicly. Some people need to be called out publicly, but not everything needs to be made public. There are some things that need to be very private. Um, there are institutions I've had issues with and I've communicated to them privately. Here's what I think about you. Here's how I feel. Um, there may be a time where I may, I may need to communicate that publicly, but I would much rather them know how I feel privately before I go public about their their, their my frustrations, if you will. Yeah. One other thing that I want to ask you about uh, before our time is up is you ask just this very penetrating question. You say, at what point does separation from the world become more dangerous than beneficial? Which I don't think is a question that we're asking a whole lot right now. Yeah. Or at least it doesn't seem like it from uh, from that. I would love to know, like, what are some some indicators for people who are trying to figure out how to do this well of like, hey, these are some signs that you might be on the right path towards engaging well. And these are some indicators that like, hey, you might need to work on engaging better. Yeah. I think we, um, hmm. I think it, it just depends oftentimes on the theological positions that people are communicating in churches. There are some, there are a lot of churches now who are talking more about cultural engagement and understanding work is bigger than just something that you do to pass time. It's like, no, your work is contributing. It's a theological thing. It's a theological position to work and to contribute to the flourishing of society. And so for those types of churches, I think there is a sense of healthy uh, engagement that is being communicated. But there are a lot of churches that don't talk about 
work as a way of engaging, as entertainment as a way of engagement, as missions as a way of engagement. And so usually it's just project-based. It's more like we go out there to preach the gospel, to win souls, and then you retreat back to the base. You know, it's like, that's not, I don't think that's the way that Jesus saw mission. He saw it as my life, everything I do is offered up as a living sacrifice. So whether I am lunching, whether I am uh, walking from town to town, whether I am sitting with somebody, I'm using these as all teachable moments to engage. And oftentimes what we think is that the world is some contagion that if we engage, it'll jump on us and we won't be able to shake it. And so therefore we create this fear that Christians will never be able to operate in spaces that aren't actually religious. And so go to church, get the plan, and then just figure out how to throw like <laughs> throw missionary bombs into places and hopefully those bombs stick and they create impact rather than actually living amongst people, working with people who are different from you, having great conversations with your neighbors, going out, hanging out, living, creating projects with people who are different from you. And those projects can create, create great benefit for the world, even if they have no Christian association to it. Um, your work doesn't have to solely be tied to some social good in order for it to be worship unto the Lord. And so um, it's it's my belief that I think the Christian one great Christian discipline is to engage the world in the spirit. Hmm. Okay. So uh, I guess I lied. I had one other thing that I want to <laughs> ask you about. Um, you know, this this last quote you say is, you know, our art replicates either the shallowness or the depth of our relationships with God and people. What have you learned about how we can deepen our art in the in the work that we do? Um, I kind of borrowed a uh, analogy from Lauren Hill, who uh, in a, a speech she gave, she talked about peaks and valleys, and oftentimes. Um, artists often often are, are trying to climb the mountain and to achieve the peak because that's where everybody has called, uh, has said the artist should arrive. The artist should be at the peak and they should stay there. And that's when you know you're on top, You people celebrate you. But the reality of it is, is most life happens in valleys. Mm. Uh, you learn in the valley of life. And if you're constantly only trying to achieve what happens at the top of a mountain is there's no life there. Nothing grows on top of mountains, just, you know, but vegetation and life happens in a valley. And I think artists should live more. And the more we live, I think the less shallow our work is because we're actually engaging in the depths of, of reality. And we're seeing that the things we're communicating are real to people because we've lived it. And uh, we're not just creating for, the market. We're not just creating for sales. We're creating because we're telling the truth about life. We're telling the truth about society. We have real honest answers for people. And then we're not just giving answers just to, we're not just giving, we're not just speaking to people. We're creating conversations, if you will, if that makes yeah. sense. Oh yeah. And so for me, it's been uh, this great wrestle between challenging people, but also trying to learn in life so that I feel like I can bring something to the conversation that is weighty rather than just shallow and it has no real merit. That's just the type of artist that I am because sometimes shallowness is good. Sometimes people just want to just 
party and have fun. And that's good. So I don't want to make it seem like yeah. the only good art is the thought-provoking, serious, dark art. Like, no, like there's great art that just, hey, let's have a good time. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think you're hitting that. Like, that's life. Too. Yeah. Sometimes it's That's it's the high it's the highs and lows. Actually, so yeah, so life is the actual this 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 the ascent the ascending and the descending. It's yeah. not just the uh, veneer of being on top. It's like, well, let's talk about what happens when you descend it and you were in the valley, and actually tell us about the difficulties of ascending, you know, to the top. Mm. Oftentimes, we just assume that people just achieved and they're there, and they didn't have obstacles in getting there. So. Life is comprehensive rather than just these a couple of moments. Yeah. Well, show I know that people are going to want to pick up the book. He saw that it was good. And, you know, you mentioned you you know, you got film. Sometimes maybe you got podcast as well. And then you always got music. So where's the best place for people to just keep up with you and get the book as well? Uh, you can go to my website, barakaology.com, B-A-R-A-K-A-O-L-O-G-Y.com. Um, my social media handles are all... Like am I show Baraka A M I S H O B A R A K A, and so um, I have an event, a virtual event that I'll be doing at the end of June. It's called Two Good Nights. Um, we haven't really promoted it just yet, but hopefully by the time this podcast releases, it will be promoted. And so you'll see a little bit of the video element of of what I do. Um, so yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast, and thanks for doing doing the work and sharing the work also. Absolutely, man. Thank you. I don't know about you, but like coming out of that conversation, I remember after it ending, I just felt like there was so like so much stuff. There are so many things uh, to take away from it. Um, and I just want to kind of leave you with two of some of the things that I've been thinking about since um, since really I started reading the book. And I think it just coincides with a lot of just some of the other things that I've been thinking about recently. And I think one of the big ideas is realizing um, the importance of paying attention to our brokenness and how it's it's in our brokenness, it's in our weakness that we're like we're able to do some of the greatest uh, works, whether that uh, is with people or whether that is with creating works of art or even like things like the pod, like this podcast um, for me personally. But it's it's in our ability to admit our weaknesses that I think we're able to find our greatest work, our greatest strength, which is um, I don't know, ironic, but for me, you know, being a follower of Jesus, like it just reminds me so much of uh, of what Paul writes about. I think in Second Corinthians, to where he talks about you know uh, God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, and I think one of the ways that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness is through creating works of art. Out of out of the pain that we have experienced ourselves or that we've gone through, as well, and so I think that's one of the things that really stood out to me. From I think the second thing is how important it is uh, to being able to understand our history, and that 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 concerns our uh, our individual history, our family history, um, our national history, as well our area history. And the reason is, is because so many times history repeats itself. I, uh, I've been talking with um, a friend recently, and really, it's, it's, it's several different people that I feel like I've been having this similar conversation with as I've been reading things, as they've been reading things and going like, wow, it is, uh, it is just crazy to think about of how, much I, how much we see history repeat itself. 
And we have the opportunity to learn from our history and respond differently. Or maybe in some cases, maybe they handled it well in the past and learning how we need to respond today. And so for me, those are a couple of things that I've been thinking about. Um, and I would just love to hear some of the things that you're learning about. Uh, and specifically, if you have stuff in history that you've been reading recently that has just been mind-blowing uh, to you, I would love to hear some of that stuff. Because again, I'm, that's something that I'm trying to learn more about. I'm trying to learn more about uh, the the history part of it, both uh, on a on a on an American uh, United States scale and as well as a global scale as well. So any recommendations that you have, I would love to hear from you. The best way to reach out to me is at Caleb J. Mason on Instagram. And I would love to hear some of the things that you're learning about. If you loved this episode, the best way to make sure that you don't miss a single episode is by subscribing to the podcast on whatever podcast player you use. And go ahead and leave a rating and write a review. That really does help the podcast as well. And yeah, I'm just really thankful that you've decided to listen today. I want to say a couple of quick thank yous to Garrett Oler, who does the editing for this podcast, for Sam Massey, who uh, has recorded the music for this podcast as well. And thanks again to Show for being on the Learner's Corner podcast as well. Anyway, I think that's all that I have today. So thanks so much for listening to the Learner's Corner podcast. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. <laughs>